page number, the uh, reading that Rachel read for us just a bit earlier in the service. And we're coming back to, um, uh, coming back to uh, Revelation chapter uh, 1, 2 and 3. We did 1 and 2 earlier in the year, had a little break. Now we're back in chapter 3 and, as it were, filling, finishing off this uh, little series. It's page 1235. Now I want to ask a question this evening that I, that I don't think I can answer. And at first I don't suppose you will, but the question is this, are we here at Christ Church forward like the church in Sardis here in Revelation chapter 3 verses 1 to 6? It is a genuine question, I really don't know the answer, uh, but you'll see as we go through it is a crucial question for us to look at, uh, to, to look at as, we, as we look at this chapter uh, this, this evening. Because while this was written to the church in Sardis, this is still a message for all churches today. Look at verse 6. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Actually the way every little letter ends in Revelation 2 and 3. And so the Holy Spirit says, you see, these words are for us today. So I'm going to pray now for us that we would have, as it says here, an ear to hear because as we go through this passage you'll see we could uh, very easily uh, think it's not for us. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we've prayed that the breath of life, the Holy Spirit, would come sweeping through us. We've prayed for you to revive your church And we pray very much that that would be true here today. Especially if we turn out to be just like the church in Sardis. We ask you to have mercy on us and help us to hear all that you say to us this evening. And we pray it through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. When we lived in in London, we lived just around the corner from Madame Tussauds, the, the Waxworks Museum. Now, I don't know whether you've been, uh, many of you will have done. Uh, As you walk around the museum, you'll see figures of of the Queen and Tony Blair, although I suppose not for much longer, he's going to be moved aside, isn't he? And for Posh and Bex, all those uh, amazing people. They look amazingly, remarkably lifelike. But of course you know that all the celebrities are only waxworks as you walk around. It's obvious that they're not the real people because they wouldn't just be standing there in Madame Two Swords, but cleverly positioned around the museums are dummies of ordinary people. People sitting on benches reading papers and people behind counters. And let me tell you, you feel like a real Charlie <laughs> when you approach them and ask them the way to the toilet. <laughs> you think you can get away with it when you suddenly realise until someone else is looking at you and laughing all over their face. They look so real. They are, in fact, dead. Now, desperately, churches can be the same, and Sardis was a church just like that. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Now, that's the diagnosis. You are dead. Time of death? Well, we're not sure. But that was Jesus' verdict. Sardis is a dead church. But please, please don't get the wrong idea. Look again at verse 1. 
Sardis was a church with a reputation, a good reputation, a reputation for being alive. See, Sardis was an active church, a busy church, not a church of half a dozen old ladies meeting together in a cold old building with an organist hitting duff notes all the time and a doddery old vicar who left you wondering if he'd still be alive by the end of the service. Or worse, have you wondering if he was alive at the beginning of the service? (laughs) My brother preached at a church just like this some years back and, well, he was a bit mischievous as he told me all about this dire service and he said to me, halfway through the meeting, I nearly suggested to the congregation that we should stop the service, join hands and see if we could contact the living. I, of course, would never say anything like that, but that's what my brother's like. Now, let me tell you, Sardis wasn't like that. 4 verse 1, the church at Sardis had the reputation of being a lively, living, active church. Now, from verse 1, then, I can guess Sunday at Sardis was marked by good singing, healthy numbers, people of all ages, a buzz as you went through the door. And I presume midweek there was plenty going on, Bible study groups, Christianity explored courses, mums and toddlers, Friday club, women's groups, men's prayer breakfast, with youth groups well attended, a children's track bursting at the seams. You can imagine a hive of activity, you see, had a, a reputation for being alive. My guess is the churches around might even have aspired to be like the church at Sardis. Alive, and, I suggest, theologically sound. Now you'll be saying, where do you get that from this passage? You see, as I read through this letter in chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, in the church in Sardis, I, I, I notice there's no mention of false doctrine, no mention at all. But you see, if we read through the letters written to the other churches in chapter 2, to the church in Ephesus and Pergamum and Thyatira, Jesus exposes false teaching and false teachers for what they are. He will always do that. But here in Sardis, no mention of Balaam or the Nicolaitans or Jezebel. I think it's safe to assume that in Sardis there was no false teaching and no obvious scandal. For if there had been, Jesus would have exposed it because that's what he did in chapter 2 with those churches, you see. Now, do you see, from all outward appearances, everything about this church seemed good, but outward appearances are notoriously deceptive. And Jesus Christ sees beyond reputations. He's not impressed by them, and he's certainly not fooled by them. The risen Jesus sees what's really going on. And that's why he says these devastating words in verse 1. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Now, do you see how shocking these words are, now that we know the the situation? And do you see why I want to ask our question this evening? Are we like the church in Sardis? And do you see why I genuinely don't know the answer, but I'm, I'm so desperate to know? Because Sardis was busy and and lively. Sardis was doctrinally on the money. Sardis wasn't ruined by scandal, yet it was dead. I imagine they could barely believe their ears when this letter was read out to them. Us dead? Do we here have a reputation of being alive? I think maybe we do. Do we care about doctrinal accuracy? Yes, we do. 
Do we look alive? When I look at our busy programme, I think we do. Are we alive, spiritually alive? I hope we are. But then Sardis would have said the same. Sardis, a church with a great reputation, presumed they were alive. They were, in fact, a spiritual graveyard. Now, here's a key question. What had brought about the death of the church in Sardis? Look at verse 4. He says positively, uh, finally, he says, yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. Now, the point of looking at that verse now is to say there were some in the church who were not tarred with the same brush, but do you see the way Jesus describes those who have not soiled their clothes? He's obviously making the point there are tons in the church who have soiled their clothes. When Jesus looked at this church, it was defiled, it was contaminated. It's as if this church had been struck down by a spiritual superbug. What was it that contaminated them? You see, this is why it's so difficult to look at this church. It's not obvious. It's just not obvious. It's not like the church in Thyatira in chapter 2, where in verse 20, people were being led into sexual immorality. That wasn't happening in Sardis, or, or Jesus would have mentioned it. So what was it? Well, look again at what Jesus says in the second half of verse 2. See, second half of verse 2, he says, I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Not found your deeds complete, or or more literally, fulfilled. Now, I've been trying to grapple with what that means this week, and the best I've come up with is this, that this was a church that never quite gave their all. It was a church that was always holding something back. Could it be that Sardis was a a complacent church? They kind of just relaxed. Everything's okay. We're, we're, We're good. And what brought about that complacency? Well, again, I don't know and I'm kind of guessing a bit, but do you note that there's no mention of false teaching, but there's also no mention of persecution? And when we read the letter to Smyrna in chapter 2, verses 8 to 11, there was mention of persecution. So again, I can assume that in Sardis, no persecution. And while no one wants persecution to come upon them, persecution does keep us on our toes, doesn't it? And when things are easy, we can rest on our laurels. No persecution, no false teachers. They become content. Stop pressing on, stop fighting, stop contending. That's the first step to decline, isn't it? And once the church is on a decline, it is very hard to halt the slide. Now the challenge for us is to see if we're like that as a church. Let, the, let he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Are we like this? And if we're not, then to make sure that we never allow ourselves to become like this, complacent, smug, thinking we've arrived. The diagnosis then, you're dead. The remedy? Well, look at verse 2. Wake up, strengthen then what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you've received and heard. Obey it and repent. 
First then the wake-up call. Wake up, he says in verse 2. Strengthen what remains. It's a real surprise, isn't it? See, he's just said you're a dead church. Then he's saying wake up. Now, Now, none of you medics here would dream of saying wake up to a dead patient, would you? You just don't do that. Shall I tell you why you don't do that? Because you're not God. Jesus can wake the dead. Do you remember how he did just that with the daughter of Jairus, the synagogue ruler in Mark chapter 5? By the time he reached her house, she died and the wake had already began. Women were wailing outside the house, but Jesus walked through those wailing women into the room, into the little girl's room. He took her by the hand and he said, Talitha kum, which means little girl, get up, wake up. And she got up. It's as easy for Jesus to raise the dead as it is for you and me to wake somebody up from their sleep. And so, yes, this church was dead. But even when a church is dead, there is a chance when Jesus is in the picture. Jesus' diagnosis was correct in verse 1. But because he is the one who can breathe life into dead bones, he can tell a dead church to wake up. That's what he's saying here. This is the wake-up call. And you see what it is in verse 2? Strengthen what remains. The word strengthen is the word used to the early church for, for, for nurturing of believers. They were to strengthen what remains. Nurture the life that's there. And we discover as we read on in verse 3 that the church had been alive in the past. You see verse 3? Jesus says, remember therefore, remember what you've received and heard. Now what have they received and heard? Well again, it doesn't say, but I'm presuming it's the word of the gospel. The message of the cross, the truth of the Christ who died for them, the glorious good news of the resurrection of Jesus, the grace to live in the light of that wonderful truth. Remember the gospel. Obey it and repent. Now please note, there is no new word from the Lord to revive a a flagging church. He says, verse 3, Remember what you received and heard. No new word to, re- to revive a flagging church. There's no special extra that we need to revive a dead church. Now, I, I want to emphasise that because I think that's very important to note. Because there are many today who would have us believe that the way to breathe life into a church is to chase after something apart from the gospel, other than the gospel, on top of the gospel. Church leaders who say, oh yeah, sure, you've got the gospel, but now what you really need if you want life in your church. Jesus told the church in Sardis, verse 3, to remember what they'd received and heard in the past. They were to remember the message of the gospel, to obey it and to repent. It's the same old message. You're, You're probably quite disappointed in that. You'll say, why doesn't he say something more spectacular? It's the same old message. But here's the question. What stops it from being just the same old message? What is it that fires a dead church and makes it alive? What is it that makes the gospel thrilling? What moves us when we got stuck in a rut, when complacency rules? Well, well, let me take you back to verse 1. 
See, at the beginning of each of these letters to the churches, Jesus talks about something significant that the church needs. Look back to chapter 2 and verse 8. See, the church in Smyrna was suffering persecution to the point of death. And so in chapter 2, verse 8, right at the beginning of this letter, Jesus reminds them that he died and came to life. If you're going to lose your life, you need to know and be sure of the resurrection. Look at chapter 2, verse 12. The church in Pergamum had allowed false teachers among them. So Jesus reminds them in chapter 2, verse 12, at the beginning of that letter, that he holds the sharp, double-edged sword, the word of God. See how it works when false teaching is around. The church needs to remember the word of God. Now here in Sardis, what does he say in verse 1? to this church that has become complacent, this dead church. He says, verse 1, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. The seven stars, well, in chapter 1, verse 20, we're told that the seven stars are the angels or the messengers of the seven churches, the representatives of the churches, quite possibly the leaders of the churches. But one way or another, he's saying, I've got the churches in my hand. And then chapter 3, verse 1, the seven spirits of God. What's that about? Well, I go with the footnote that you'll see at the bottom of the page. The sevenfold spirit of God. That is the Holy Spirit. Described as the sevenfold spirit, according to Archbishop Trench, to express his, his manifold energies, the power and gifts of the spirit, if you like. And so in Jesus' right hand are the churches, and in his left hand is the Holy Spirit. And John Stott says, if only he would bring his hands together. If only the Spirit would fill the church, then this church would be alive. That's what a dead church needs. The life-giving energy of the Spirit of God. That's what a complacent church needs, for he is the Spirit of life. It is the Holy Spirit who can breathe life into formal worship. It is the Holy Spirit who can animate our dead works until they pulsate with life. It is the Holy Spirit who can rescue a dying church and make it a living force in the community. It is the Holy Spirit who can transform our actions and change a church that's lost its oomph. Again, John Stott says of the Holy Spirit, a stale church can be refreshed by him. A sleepy church awakened, a weak church strengthened and a dead church made alive. And you see how this all goes together. If we're complacent, our job, our job is to wake up, verse 2. Our job, verse 3, is to remember the gospel, obey it and repent. That's what we must do. There's no new message, no new angle, no new emphasis. There's not something that we haven't yet heard about. The gospel is all we need. But here's the promise. As we return to the gospel, as we glory in it, as we meditate on it, as we obey it, as we're captivated by it, as we repent of all the other things that we allow to become more important than Jesus, then as we do that, the Lord Jesus gives the Holy Spirit to transform us to be all that we ought to be. See, I love this. There is no case for driving a wedge between word and spirit, between the gospel and the Holy Spirit. We're to remember what we've heard, the gospel, to obey it and repent, and then the spirit brings the church back to life. 
But he doesn't do it separate from the gospel. The diagnosis, dead. The remedy, wake up. The prognosis? We'll look halfway through verse 3. If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what time I'll come to you. Now the judgment day of Jesus right through the New Testament is described in these terms as an unexpected thief in the night. You don't know when Jesus is going to re- return in judgment. It could be any time. See, if you knew when the thief was coming, then you'd obviously prepare for him. It's not saying that Jesus is a thief. It's not saying that he's going to rob people of things that aren't his. It's not saying anything like that. It's just saying, like a thief comes when you least expect him, so Jesus will come at any time. That's what he's saying. Now, verse 3 might well be pointing to that great and dreadful day of the Lord, the final day of judgment. It might well be pointing to that. But I want to suggest that in this context, Jesus is talking about judgment upon this church, upon the church in Sardis, this dead church, and indeed any dead church come to that. That any dead church, if it remains dead and will not hear this word to wake up, will one day be removed. So go to Sardis today and you will not find a church. Judgment did come upon this church. This lampstand was removed. Seems this church didn't wake up. He didn't remember and obey and repent. And so the Lord came like a thief and removed it. Well, that's the best thing to do to a dead body, isn't it? We don't want dead bodies lying around, so he took it away. And that's why it's so important for us to ask the question tonight. Are we here at Christ Church Forward like the church in Sardis? Have we become complacent? Are we dead even though we have a reputation for being alive? Are we tempted to live off our reputation? For if we are, and then if we fail to hear what the Spirit says to the churches, if we fail to wake up, the Lord will come one day like a thief when we least expect it at the most unexpected time and he will remove us. So there will be no witnessing forward. Now do you see why it's so crucial to ask the question? If we are dead like the church in Sardis and if we don't wake up, we may well be removed one day. Now look, we're looking around, we think that could never happen. I bet they said the same in Sardis. That would never happen to us. And actually doesn't that explain why there are many suburbs and towns and villages all over England that have no meaningful living churches in them? Doesn't that explain why, well, I don't know whether you go to as many churches that I do, but why I see so many churches in this great nation that are huge buildings that have held hundreds of people in the past, but these days only ever have a few old ladies and a dog on a Sunday. Well, I don't know where the dog goes, but you know what I mean. Look at the landscape in this land and you see that verse 3 is no idle threat. Judgment will come upon churches that are dead, even if they have a reputation for being alive. Why did they make churches as big as they did all those years ago? Presumably because they needed the space to fit people in. And now there's hardly anyone going. What's that that about? Is it not verse 3 being lived out? I don't know. I'm, I'm suggesting it is. But as we go, as we close, look at the Lord's wonderful concern for individuals who are real Christians. Yes, he's speaking to the church as a whole, but then he's bothered about the individuals who are still still going on with him as they should, who aren't resting on their laurels. Look at verse 4. 
yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy. See, there were people in the church in Sardis who were alive, people who were not complacent, people who were not living off any reputation, people who had a real and vital and living relationship with the Lord. And that's true in churches in Britain today. Dead churches often have a tiny remnant of believers, a small number who are holding on in prayer and in a real and sincere faith. There's often some who've not defiled themselves and who are not dishonouring the name of Jesus by living off their reputation. People who are sold out for Jesus and God bless them for carrying on in these dead churches. And when Jesus looks at them, he doesn't see people in soiled clothes but dressed in white, verse 4. And verse 5, anyone who likes them walks with Jesus will be dressed in white. And you see also in verse 5, they'll be entered into the book of life. It's a powerful picture, that, isn't it? I think it's only picture language, but it's a great picture. God has a book. He has a register in heaven. And that's the book that counts. See, our name can be on a church register without ever being in God's register. Let me ask you this evening, are you sure your name is in God's book? That's the only book that matters. It doesn't matter whether you're a member of this church or any other church. You should be a member of a church. It doesn't matter whether you're registered in this church. or any, But is your name in God's book? If we overcome, you see, if we walk with the Lord and live by the gospel in sincerity and truth, then we can be sure of having our name in his book. And you see what that means, verse 5? We'll be acknowledged by Jesus before the Father and his angels. One day we'll be, we'll be led into the presence. Jesus will take us by the hand, as it were, and he'll lead us into it, the presence of the Father and he'll say, I know this one, this one's one of mine. And the angels in heaven as well, and say, I know who this is. Uh, yeah, I know this one. See, Jesus Christ longs for his people to have a relationship with him which is real. It's about a reputation. It isn't stuck in the past. A relationship which is vibrant and living. And let me encourage you, just as an individual now, no matter how long you've been stuck in the past, if you wake up to your spiritual state this evening, Jesus Christ will restore you to a living relationship with him. Meditate on the gospel. Look again at the wonderful cross of the Lord Jesus. See how much he loves you. Ask his forgiveness for the times you've taken that for granted. Ask him by his spirit to give you new life in your heart for him. And he will do that. But the major thrust of this is to us as a church family, not to us as individuals. And friends, can we take this to heart, this word? Can I ask the church wardens and the PCC especially and those in leadership in this church to test this because I don't know. That's the problem. We're so close to Sardis we could think it's not for me. That's what they'd have said. Let's hear the word. Let's have a good long look at ourselves. If we're dead, it's not too late. Let's hear the wake-up call. 
Let's return to the gospel. Let's be thrilled by it. Let's be driven by it. And if we're not dead and we're already doing that, then that's terrific. But let's be sure that we never, ever allow ourselves to go this way. Let's pray together.